Well, there at the top of page 12, we come to Lord's Day 17 in our reading through and preaching through the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, though we had five questions and answers to read through last week, we now come back to some basic simplicity. We have just one question before us this evening that is answered in three parts. Let's read this question and answer concerning the resurrection of Christ together. Question 45. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by his resurrection, he has overcome death, so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. Well, may the Lord write his word on our hearts as we open the scriptures together. And let's ask now for the Holy Spirit to help us do just that. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. And yet we do repent. And even in this service of worship, have repented of our sins. And we seek your grace to help us in our remaining weakness. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you through our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever and ever. And all the people of God set together. Amen. It was in Athens, in the heart of Greece, that the Apostle Paul stood up on the hill of Ares, Mars Hill, the Areopagus, and preached the gospel to all who would listen. And he had a whole lot to say, but when he was done, the thing that was zeroed in on was the doctrine of the resurrection. The thing that was mocked and scoffed at was his testimony that Christ was raised from the dead, and that those who believe in this Christ would also be raised from the dead. Acts 17, verse 32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. It piqued their interest because in the crowd were Epicureans, who believed that there was no existence after death at all, and also some were Stoics, who believed that death was a liberation from this nasty, physical, material body that we are enslaved in. Uh, So both sides, both sides of that argument, whatever kind of person made up that little congregation that day, they all had reason to scoff at the doctrine of the resurrection. It led to puzzlement and to more questions. But Paul says elsewhere that if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. And we are to be pitied above all in this world. This doctrine is central to the Christian faith. And it is why we confess it in the creed. So little is said in the creed. You know, so, so if it is in there, it is something of central importance to us. And that's what we find here in the doctrine of the resurrection. 
And to see why, we're going to look at the Bible's teaching about Jesus' resurrection and then discover two kinds of benefits that come to us through it. So first this evening, the resurrection of Jesus. And not just his resurrection, the, the moment of it, the event of it, but also events leading up to it and foreshadowings of it. If you read through the Old Testament, there are only a few instances where someone is actually raised from the dead. We read one of the most famous of those passages in 1 Kings 17, Elijah raising the widow's son. There are even more than, than just uh, actual examples of people being raised from the dead. There are more images and prefigurings of the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. For instance, Abraham in Genesis 22 famously comes very close to sacrificing his son Isaac on the altar before the angel of the Lord calls out and stops him from doing so. Now, the book of Hebrews looks at that event and says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, it is a, it's an image of resurrection. It is a figurative kind of resurrection. We saw it in our reading of the Joseph story. Joseph was nearly killed. He was put down in a pit. That is the language that the Psalms talk about for the grave all the time. He's sold into slavery. He's put behind bars. He's as good as dead. But by the end of that story, he is raised and exalted to being one of the chiefs and governors over the entire land of Egypt. He's shown to be alive and thriving. It's like he's been received back from the dead. And that news hits his father with such power that it says his own spirit revived in him. Why all these stories? And we could go on and on. The pattern is everywhere throughout the Holy Scriptures. Why all this emphasis on a reversal of death? The answer, of course, is that it has always been God's intention to trample over death through the death and resurrection of his son. And it is useful to remember some of those Old Testament stories of resurrection to highlight especially what is unique and special about Jesus' resurrection. Kids, if you think about the resurrection stories that we just read about, all of them have to do with mere human beings being raised from the dead. So the question is, what's different between those and Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Um, Christ's resurrection is not figurative. It's not just a picture of someone rising from the dead. It's not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. Uh, Joseph in the Old Testament was raised up out of that pit, and that gives us an image, a metaphor for resurrection. But Christ's resurrection is true and authentic. His body died. His organs stopped. His spirit departed from his body. And so when he rose, it was the same body that had been nailed to the tree and laid in the tomb. And it was raised from death to life. What was dead was now suddenly alive again. As Jesus says in Luke 24, 39, he says, see my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Even Jesus knows there's going to be some skepticism about this. Even he knows that perhaps it will be interpreted as merely a metaphor or a dream or hallucination. The kinds of, uh, of things that we still hear in our own day. Jesus himself says, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones. And so, the key difference is that Jesus' resurrection is an authentic rising from the state of death now to a state of life. But another key difference from those who received the miracle of resurrection in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, like Lazarus, Lazarus, like some people in the book of Acts, is that after those people rose from the dead, they were really just living to die another day. Very unfortunately for them, they came to another day of death, another hour of death. But when Jesus rose, it was not temporary, but a permanent act of glorification. Here's how the theologian J.I. Packer puts it. He says, it was not just a resuscitation of Jesus's physical frame that was taken down from the cross for burial. It was rather a transformation of Jesus's humanity. The creative renewing of his original body, the body that is now glorified and deathless. That's a great line. That body, which Jesus still has, by the way, we'll cover that in our Doctrine of the Ascension. He still has, is a glorified body, and death has no claim over it. It is a permanent glorification. And so Jesus' death and his resurrection are different than those resurrection stories that we find in the rest of the scriptures. But like everything Jesus did and everything he does, this amazing event has consequences for us. And we now look at two of them. Two kinds of benefits that come to us in the present age because of this event that took place in the life and ministry of Jesus. And the first is that we look at the the benefits that come to us now in this age. We read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Notice this. Because this this is a great verse. I think a lot of people have memorized a verse kind of like this, or other similar ones from Paul. And as is the case, sometimes that familiarity can make us forget what it's saying. Paul is saying you've been raised with Christ. Hold on to that and do not let it go. You've been raised with Christ. Now, the the key question is, were you there in the tomb with Jesus 2,000 years ago and then you received the same miracle of resurrection with Jesus? Is that what Paul means? No, of course not. And so what Paul must be saying is that the benefits that come to the believer in this life from Jesus' resurrection are primarily spiritual benefits. You are in precious, vital union with Jesus Christ. And if he has been raised, so have you. What does that accomplish? Because it actually accomplishes something. 
it accomplishes, according to the catechism, two main things. It accomplishes more, but our catechism summarizes things for us. And the catechism highlights two of, of its accomplishments. First, it accomplishes the grace of the new birth, which is sometimes called regeneration. It accomplishes the grace of regeneration. The Apostle Peter makes this connection for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to the link between resurrection and the new birth. Peter says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, as we will belabor tonight and as we continue on in the, in the work of Jesus Christ through our uh, series in the Catechism, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago actually did something. He didn't just do something in order to make something possible for you, but he accomplished it. You were dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually unable to see God, but now the Holy Spirit has brought the accomplishment of Jesus Christ's resurrection here now to you, and it is given to you as the gift of spiritual life. Because he was raised, you are raised. You were born again. You were given the gift of a new life. As the Catechism says, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life. Already. Christ's resurrection also accomplishes the grace of justification. The grace of justification. Romans chapter 4, verse 24. Once again, we see the apostles linking for us as plain as day, the accomplishment of Jesus and a gift that is given to us. Paul says, Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Because he was raised, you are justified in the sight of God. That means your sins are remitted, they are completely forgiven, and you are righteous forever in the sight of God. And this is the accomplishment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not merely an historical event, but a saving event, an effective event. Because he has been raised, you are regenerated and justified. As our catechism says, so that he might make us share in the righteousness of He obtained for us. It is by the resurrection that we enjoy that benefit. Those are the benefits now. These are spiritual realities. It is as though in the resurrection, in all the the coming and the work of Jesus Christ, that the heavens have been opened up and all the powers of the age to come have just been poured out upon you. And we're mentioning just two of them. And those have come to you now. But there is a benefit, one primary benefit that we are waiting for, the benefit that comes later. As the Catechism goes on to say, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. In other words, because Christ was raised bodily, you also will be raised bodily. And you will certainly be raised bodily. It is not in doubt In fact, everyone who's ever lived will receive a body on the day of the Lord, some for glorification and some for destruction. But those who belong to Christ will receive 
a body like his. And that is a benefit that we are still waiting for. And we put our hope in it. And we should always have, this is something that we should, it should just furnish our minds that we're waiting to be raised. That our bodies, which are decaying and constantly are facing all kinds of infirmities and pains and suffering now, will one day no longer have those kinds of problems. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 and 23, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You notice this wonderful uh, two Adams theology that is in the New Testament. Sometimes very explicit like this, and sometimes hovering in the background. We have certain consequences that have come to us through Adam, as the first parts of our catechism make very clear to us. Adam sinned, and he was our head. And as goes the head, so goes the body. He sinned, so we became sinful. He sinned, so we all die. But now there is a new head, who is Jesus Christ. And as goes that head, so goes his body. Paul says there's an order to this. Um, Christ has already been raised as a symbol of what is to come. His resurrection is not a symbol, you see. It really happened. But it is symbolic of something that is going to come later. He uses this language of the first fruits. That's the language of the harvest. The, the first fruits are that initial crop that is mature at the beginning and shows that there's a bigger harvest that is about to come. And Jesus is that first fruits. It's a sign that a bigger harvest is coming. And Paul says that the timing of this is when he returns. We're waiting for his glorious coming. And that is why the apostles are constantly exhorting us, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, coming again. Encourage each other with this. To look ahead to the day when what has already happened to him will finally happen to his elect people. Paul says that that's what it's like with this resurrection. By the power of his word and his Holy Spirit, Jesus will come and powerfully transform our mortal bodies to be like his glorious body. You will still be you, but without your sinful passions. And you will still be you, but you can't get sick anymore. And you can't die anymore. And to the extent that death has no dominion over Christ, it will no longer have any dominion over you as well. You will have the same body, but restored and healed and always at rest. Because it will finally enter into that eternal Sabbath rest. And nothing can get you there. There's no sin there. There's no decay there. That is what we are looking forward to in the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, think about the security that that gives you even now while you wait. To know that Christ's resurrection gives you new life now means that now you can pursue a life of joy and holiness. You were dead in Adam. You couldn't do anything holy. But through the resurrection of Christ, you have a new head 
You have new life through him. And so a new kind of life proceeds from that. A life of joy and a life of holiness. You are no longer spiritually dead, but alive in Christ. To know that Christ's resurrection guarantees your bodily resurrection later means that you can face even the grave with confidence. So you do not have to be, brothers and sisters, like the ancient Epicureans or the ancient Stoics, both of whom have their representatives in our day and age, whether they use those names or not. Do not think that death is the end of the story. We are constantly tempted to act as though the grave is the end, but it is not. It is not the end. And do not be like those who say that death is just a final release from the prison of our bodies, as though our bodies are some terrible thing, a necessary evil for a time. We will be restored to our bodies. And all that made them evil will be stripped away from them. And we will have a body like his. And while you wait for this glorious event to take place, remember the words that Jesus confronted to Mary and Martha and that confront you again today with hopefully comfort and with reassurance. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful Father, we give you thanks for having established your covenant with believers and their children. For as you have told us, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This promise you have not only signified and sealed by holy baptism, but daily proved by perfecting your praise through the mouths of children, and so putting to shame the wise and understanding of this world. Continue to establish your saints in this faith throughout their lives. So give us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given us and to instruct our children in your knowledge and fear until they have reached complete maturity. All of this we ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.